The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, Lamentus is lovely this time of year. It's Andy Greenwald! Chris, Lamentus 2. I was very clear when I sent you the pin <laughs> in Google Space Maps. Lamentus 2. I love the, the IGs you've been putting up from Lamentus 2. Andy, what's up? Uh, it's th- Friday morning, actually. Uh, so welcome back to the show. You missed Monday, but we had a great show with Waz. I also just wanted to quickly do housekeeping wise. If people get a chance to check out 60 songs that explain the 90s, please, please do. If you haven't yet, please check it out. I went on this week and did uh, Pavement's Gold Sounds, which is one of my favorite songs. Me and Andy so both jealous. love that song. Uh, Rob's intro essay is like next level good. Rob is just doing really, really amazing work on that podcast. It's one of my favorite pods that The Ringer has done. And shout out to Justin and Isaac who work on it as well. And it's just like an incredible show. And if you have a road trip coming up this summer, I recommend you like get like five or six of them and listen to them in a row. It's like, it's a really awesome, awesome show. So please check that out. Andy, how are you? Great. Great. I was just, I was entranced by what you were saying, you know, and I was, I, 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 it's funny. You sent me as you were doing research, not that either of us need to do research for having opinions about pavement, pavement, (laughs) but you know, you had been reading like old spin reviews of records and stuff. And you had sent me our, our old uh, uh, editor and mentor, Charles Aaron's uh, review of, of Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. And I'd had it open in my tab for a while. Cause I kept going back to it. Like it was just this weird, like, like, uh, um, you know, rosebud, like sled image in my mind. And then I realized that in Google books, you can go through the whole magazine. And it was the first time I felt like maybe I grew up inside of the old time family photo booth at the Rehoboth Beach boardwalk. Like that maybe when I talk, my children, you just hear, like I'm talking about daguerreotypes and how they used to be great and you could stand for a slow exposure. Because this was a magazine that we like looked at and we ended up working for it, you know, not too long after. And it's a wild time capsule, man. 
it's just a wild time capsule. You can read not a lot just of them on, were, on Google Books. You can, if you're all in, of them. Yeah, you can just kind of Google Pavement 1992 spin and see what where it takes you. It'll it'll take you to some places. Honestly, my favorite thing in it though is you know we especially the you know the 90s are are, are back in some ways in fashion. And a lot of bands are are taking from that style. I was listening to a great record this morning by a group called Rat Boys. I don't know if you've heard them, and it's just like I could have listened to this in 1998, and that's a compliment. I would have loved it then. I love it now. But there's just like a full page ad in Spin from like February 94 for I think Southern Comfort. Mm -hmm. And the ad is full page. And it's two dudes who I guess are like, they probably did market testing. Like, who are the dudes? Like, who looks like a spin reader? Okay. And they both look like... Andy and Chris. <laughs> that That's who I would have chosen for the sure. ad. Although we didn't know what bourbon was, I think, at that point. We were still, you know, pretty hooked on honey brown that we could pilfer from older brothers of friends. But the both guys look like Jay from Jay and Silent Bob. Like, it's two Jays. You know what I mean? No silence, no silence, Bob. And they are both wearing flannel shirts with nothing underneath it. And the text says, work, 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 fish. Did you see that coming? No. The dudes are standing on a dock holding fish they've caught. What a world. I don't know. What a world. I don't know how I would connect that to the 90s. Did that happen in 1994 more than it happened now? Like outdoor like activities with Southern Comfort? Just explain to me the Venn diagram of hipster grunge dudes who read Spin Magazine are shirt curious, you know, but not like committed, right, right. who work a lot, but when they're not working, drink bourbon and fish. Like, we were one America then, I guess. I, don't I think, think they drink fish. <laughs> I think that they... No, no, they, they, they drink, comma, fish. Oh, and fish. Yeah, right. Um, okay. Why don't we do this? So we want to do Loki mm -hmm. and Top Chef today. But before we do, we'll do a quick bit on Joseph Adalian's mm -hmm. most recent piece on Vulture, which we often cite Joseph's work. It's it's quite informative. It's, it, it's quite well it's sourced. It's from his newsletter Buffering, which you can sign up for. We don't work for there. We're just saying it's a good, it's a good, I mean, he has great sources, great reporting, and it's kind of about the streaming wars on a weekly basis. Right. And he has a new piece that's uh, 12 Hollywood insiders reveal who's really winning the streaming wars. There are some surprises <laughs> in this piece. It's basically it's, like a... It's us. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's basically a list of these, of these channels, of these streaming services ranked and each one has a Wall Street analyst or an agent or a reality producer or a PR vet or a regular producer just talking about where they think this streaming service is at from a variety of different angles. There's some, like I said, there's some not, not particularly surprising information and there's some, frankly, shocking uh, information in this. Andy, what jumped out at you? Well, I think the first thing that we need to say is all streaming data is incredibly obscure, right? Because there is no agreed upon standard of ratings. There is subscriber information, et cetera, et cetera. But so much of what these streaming services mean or their successes has to be judged in terms of like internal accounting, like what they are doing for the larger corporate brand. And we are pretty blind to that information, although we can certainly make some guesses. The second thing is that everyone quoted is just a shark in a snake's body or like a snake riding yeah. a shark. They like, remind me of the people like Rosillo used to do these um, anonymous NBA scout scouting profiles of incoming draft classes. And like when you throw anonymous on an NBA scout, it's just like yeah. brother duck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everything here, this is the real knives out too, right? Everyone quoted anonymously has an agenda and you could read this and be like, every service sucks. 
everything is a disaster and everybody's awful. And maybe that's true. This, this is you and I live and work in this town. It, it, it certainly has its rough edges. But I think that it has to be taken with that grain of salt as well. You know, there are, there, every single one of these services does not come out looking great. So that said, I think the biggest headline I think that you and I wanted to hit is the number one, but not necessarily with a bullet, maybe with a bunch of knives in its back is Netflix, right? And the takeaway from what people say about it is that it is more fallible than maybe the larger watching public thinks, but also the perception of it is yeah, shifting. Th th and I think this, there were a couple of things that happened this week that lend credence to that as well. There was something about the way in which the Netflix you know, critiques or assessments were phrased that I felt like, I, you know, obviously I don't sell things to Netflix or work within their system at all, but it articulated something that I think some people who watch th these things closely felt. And you're like, I knew that there was something. And sometimes mm -hmm. you're like, well, Netflix is just like, doesn't seem like they put out prestige shows anymore. Or maybe like it just so much shit is on there and I never know mm -hmm. like what's new or what I want. Or And then the sense that there are a lot of people who I think in the line here is like, it's like credit to Netflix for becoming the Kleenex of streaming where it's like mm -hmm. people don't refer to it streaming. They, they refer to it as Netflix. You know, they don't refer to it as TV. They refer to it as Netflix. Now this week there was a lot of online kind of clamor about, I can't, I honestly can't remember the name of the show, but it's like a dating show where people dress up as animals um, in full animal costume, stray beasts, something it's like that. Sexy beasts. Sexy beasts. Thanks. Chris. Thanks Kaya. Sorry. <laughs> thanks Kaya. I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but this looks like the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And this is kind of like, this is how Netflix wins. Is like, yeah. this is the kind of stuff that they're like, oh, wow, we can put losers in costumes and they can date one another. And that's, that's way cheaper, way more effective than spending millions and millions of dollars on House of Cards. Do you know who says Kleenex is just the catch-all for facial mm -hmm. tissue in a pejorative way? Puffs. Puffs says that. Sure, right. Everyone else is like, give me a Kleenex. Right. It's pretty cool to be Kleenex, I think. Yeah. Well, no, let me take rephrase that. Might not be cool. It does. Pretty profitable. It, yeah, it's pretty profitable. Right. There were two sort of supporting pieces of information here that I thought were interesting to come out this week. Um, one, a reported cover story in The Hollywood Reporter. One, some vaguely sourced tweet that I'm going to refer to. So this is a perfect podcast, in other words. Right. One was the Kenya Barris cover story. And for people who don't know the name, Kenya Barris created Blackish. You were coming to America, coming to America, among many other things. He was one of the big Netflix signings when they were doing that run of like $100 million deals with Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy. Kenya Barris was the recipient of one of those deals. His first show was Black AF, which he then starred in with Rashida Jones. And then a few months ago, he uh, consciously uncoupled from Netflix in what was, which was sort of a shocking move with a lot of money and a lot of years left on the table to go get, become an equity partner with um, Viacom and BET in a new venture called BET Studios. And this thing so it explains all of it. And anyway, obviously this piece was with Kenya's participation and it was from his point of view in a lot of ways, but Lacey Rose is a great interviewer. The takeaway from it was he was like, Netflix wasn't the place I thought it was. Right. And it wasn't the place that was going to push the envelope. And of course, from Netflix's perspective, they were probably like, we wanted blackish. We don't want you doing your version of Kirby enthusiasm. So right. it was clearly a bad fit from jump. But that was another sign that, you know, Netflix is becoming the broadcast television that we thought it was going to supplant. 
The other piece of anecdotal evidence was this uh, study that basically the median age subscriber of Netflix is considerably higher than any of the other services. Again, that's not a bad thing. Like, Older subscribe, older viewers. Yeah, are what they keeps- typically have more money. They, yeah, I mean, like there's like a certain value. I mean, like what, like look, subscribers, subscriber based businesses skew advertising. So a lot of that demographic stuff may have different uses within their kind of economic yeah. ecosystem or whatever their their business plan is. I do think that there's like an element to Netflix that feels a little like private equity or like driven by purely statistical analysis and like cost and 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 you know it's basically like cost benefit analysis rather than it would be cool to put a show like this on you know like it would be cool it would be cool like why don't like we'll, we'll do underground railroad you know what i mean like what what does chloe Zhao want to do like she can have it yeah like give her 10 hours you know i mean i i think having an older subscriber base just means that you were that the early adopters are usually younger people who are hip to things. And then Netflix has been around so long that everyone got their parents a subscription or yes. their parents got the subscription. And that's a really successful thing. I mean, your boy, David Muir is dining, <laughs> dining well in New York still because of older people who are still watching TV, right. you know, forget about young Sheldon. What about old Sheldon? That show ran for years. So yeah. that's a great place to be. Your point though, is really well taken and important which is to say that we still think of Netflix and maybe it's still relevant as they're expanding in territories around the world where they have to compete for different eyeballs and different properties. But generally, when you are successful in anything, let alone television, you do more of the same because people come to expect that from you. When you are hungry and not yet successful is when you take the biggest risks. And this is a cycle that we saw happen 10, 15 years ago. And we always cite this, but, you know, Breaking Bad and and Mad Men were like top drawer scripts that everyone had read and had gotten people, gotten Matt Weiner and um, and Vince Gilligan work and jobs and interest in meetings, but had not been made. And AMC was in a position where they they were the ones who were ready to take the chance. Mm-hmm. And that's generally where a lot of these other streamers are. And you can see this in the behavior of what uh, Joe Dalian ranks or his his anonymous sources rank as the last one, which is Peacock. And, you know, I, I, I'll speak delicately because of my relationship with the Universal and with the people involved and you in this transaction. you a huge fan of Peacocks in general. I mean, you have many Anytime I go up yeah. to Pasadena, I'm like, look at that. Look at that blue guy on that roof. Um, I think it's notable that friend of a pod, Damon Lindelof, sold his new show to Peacock. That's, uh, you know, we don't know anything about it. I think it's called Mrs. Jones. Um, but it's interesting. That's something that probably because of his relationship with Warner Brothers was at least on Casey Bloys' desk first. I mean, that that's that's where Watchmen was. And Peacock bid on it. And that must mean, for me, that means it's exciting. That means it's interesting. That means it's risk-taking. And so you've got to pay attention to that piece of the ecosystem as well when you talk about it. Yeah, the only other thing I would mention before we move on to Top Chef and Loki is just the, the, Hulu, uh, the mm-hmm. Hulu assessment here is worth noting just because... I use Hulu. I mean, I know many people who use Hulu as their way of watching live television. I know people who use Hulu as primarily as like they're that is actually what people refer to Netflix. Like people use Hulu for all of that stuff. But and I actually find that I've enjoyed many Hulu originals. But the uh, industry and the the town perception of Hulu seems to be quite a bit lower than mine. Yeah, it's odd. Also considering Hulu you know, first streaming service to win a best drama Emmy for Handmaid's Tale, like uh, by all, and, and plus their relationship and with distributed, Neon. 
digitally distributed the the best picture winner. Yeah. Parasite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 had Palm Springs, which was a big success for them. And Nomad. I Land. think I think a lot of that assessment was viewed it, it, it was being attacked from two fronts. I think creatively people were saying, I think that peop, the agents or whomever, the studio, other, you know, the, the, the creative side of it was venting some frustration apparently with the leadership team there in terms of the process. And I think that was speaking to the deeper divisions as to what is Hulu now when it, there's remnants of Fox still there, there's Disney still there, there's the creative team that was excited about making pretty groundbreaking stuff. And there's FX, which is still now folded into Hulu. So there's a lot of cooks in that particular kitchen and the kitchen itself might be redundant because for the rest of the world, the Hulu content is on a Disney plus hub. You notice I I say Disney plus when I'm speaking about the rest of the world, the French Mm -hmm. accent only applies domestically. Sure. Called star. And it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that that might be Hulu's future because Disney, you know, has multiple theme parks, but do they need multiple expensive streaming services. relatively streaming services yeah, I, I think it depends on how long they can the bundle right now the espn plus hulu mm-hmm. disney plus bundle i think is attractive if that ever winds up being like thank you for subscribing to these three different services for a while now your now your bill is 35 dollars mm. a month or 40 dollars a month i think people are going to start making some decisions I, I think the last thing to say about it is for me the bottom line in any of these conversations is really and yet, you know, this is not how I am in my actual life, but it is financial. And we talked about Netflix's, you know, uh, you know, pleasing shareholders and using market positioning to continue to grow and have a lot have deep pockets. But we're talking about a battle in which two of the participants are the two richest companies on earth, Amazon and Apple. Mm-hmm. So they're in it. They, you know, you can take shots at them and be like, oh, they they disappeared Barry Jenkins' 10-hour Underground Railroad, a show that you and I are going to return to and talk about. Um, but they can do it. So, so literally, so what? You know, <laughs> I, not to Barry Jenkins or to his fans. I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just mean that it, Amazon and Apple aren't going to fail. They keep Because they can't. Right. And Disney is also uniquely positioned both because of its content library and its enormous track, you know, its enormous um, head start with subscriber base because of the appeal of its properties, but also its properties. And now that cruise ships are running again and theme parks are open, <laughs> it's really rich. So that whole thing is going to just go great. It's the cruise ship thing is so smooth. Oh, it's so <laughs> it's so smooth. Like, how excited are you to be back on the the grand ballroom deck? No, I mean it's just it's just great because I've I've always wanted to visit the keys by <laughs> by large <laughs> battleships. Slowly, slowly <laughs> is the key. That's how I like to get places. Um, let's take a quick break and we come back. We'll do Top Chef and Loki. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Okay, we are back. Uh, what do you want to do first? Let's do Loki, then let's uh, transition into the TC because it's going to get spicy. Sure. I guess this is their. This was the link later one. You know. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean they. There we 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 busted balls about the director bullshit stuff from earlier in the season, and like it was like I think before Sunrise was in there. Uh, and, and, right. This is literally a meet cute on a train, and it's it's just two folks Incredible. walking, telling each other stuff about themselves. Um, I. Continue to think that this is probably the most cohesive and in some ways coherent like version of, of Marvel on Disney so far. Uh yep. or Marvel on Disney Plus. Yep. Uh I I have to admit, I I kind of don't know what this show is. I know what it's about, like technically. I don't know what the sort of quest is here or what we're what we're doing three episodes in. Like I don't know what who I and I think that's part of the the sort of maybe the inherent charm and maybe problem with Loki is if he's always lying and if he's always uh, creating sort of distractions and enchantments and mischief and all this stuff that like you kind of go down a lot of um, blind alleys with this character because you think he's something for five minutes and then he's something else. And when you double it by having um, Sylvie, you know, you're going to have a, a feeling of like, am I watching anything real right here? And is there a, some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of what these people want. Right. Well, I mean, I, I hear you on that. I think that what we're, what we're building to clearly is um, this whole time variance authority is a sham and someone is controlling something else and there will have to be some sort of rebellion from within and all the pieces that are slowly being gathered that reveal that all of these uh, loyal Minutemen and women who work for the TVA are themselves variants. And thus the idea of a pure timeline is fraudulent and built into that idea is the idea that people can change. Even evil gods of mischief can write their own future and destiny. And also we can have Miles Morales be Spider-Man in two to five years. So it's all part of the larger piece. I, is, that, I'm, I'm, is, I'm, is we can have Miles Morales be Spider-Man the carrot here? No, I, I just mean that we already know that the multiverse and multiple timelines is the future of the Marvel universe. Gotcha. You know, I mean, our, our, your guy, Dr. Strange, I mean, he's going to be in the multiverse of madness. No, I know they don't, they're not. Hiding it. And we know that the Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man meme is coming to our screens in December. So that's, that is the future. And that's, that's okay. To me, I, I think I'm coming. I think we both fundamentally agree that this is working. And I think that the reasons for it are kind of like what you said, you you brought it up as potentially as a you know 
it could be confusing or it could be, you know, darkness on the horizon or <laughs> darkness on lamentus. <laughs> but I I'm remain thrilled that there is no who's the power broker. You know, yeah. I, I did do a browse through the fanosphere and it's some pretty thin gruel. You know, people are like, oh, that moon is Lamentus One, which you all remember from the Annihilation crossover of the early 2000s. And that definitely means we're doing the Abnet and Lanning Guardians of the Galaxy versus the Annihilation Wave story. And it's like, I my guess is Michael Waldron was like, hey, Lou Desposito and Kevin Feige, what's a planet? Yeah, and like, what Here's planet one. am I allowed to use? Right. Yeah, you know, right. and that's fun because we own the IP rights to the words Lamentus One, you know, which I actually think was a Coheed and Cambria album title, but I guess I was wrong about that. And so I love that we don't, that that it's harder than I think people expected to parse here. I mean, it's still fun if people go read Annihilation or whatever, Cree Scroll War that is sure. being referenced, That that's additive but I don't think it's necessary. And the second piece, which I think we agree on, is that after three episodes, even this one that was, and maybe because this one was slightly different, I just think this is the most successful one they've done to date also, because the, the show it itself, is completely, but not yeah, I just the, think it is a, yeah. yeah, the show itself, because I think this is just fully a successful project. And that sounds a little cold to say it that way, but what I mean is, or clinical, it just feels like all of the talents here, and Marvel has no trouble attracting talent, that's been established, is on the same page and pointed in the same direction. So we have these great, fun, rich performances from Tom Hiddleston and Sofia DiMartino in this episode, matched with this production design, matched with the cinematography, matched with the matchless CGI or, you know, how Unreal no, that's, Engine that's or whoever all, they're doing That's this. all practical effects, man. That's all in camera. <laughs> I love it. Feige was like, have you ever seen uh, Water? <laughs> Did you guys before? see fucking Blade Runner? <laughs> oh my That's God. That's wild. <laughs> but um, but it, it, it's all, for me, it's all working because it is just, it, it, it's, it's self-contained and, and moving forward on the track, to use the train analogy. So let me ask it, you this. It's like you know, somebody I, I, who's read a lot of comics and who has kind of been rope-a-doped, I'm sure, way more times than I have when it comes to I'm reading mm -hmm. a, a, a run and then it turns out that the consequences of this run or the stakes of this run were essentially nothing because it was all this. If it turns out that this entire episode, which I thought was at times charming and was at times a little bit of a drag, uh, if it turns out that this entire episode is happening inside of Loki's head because she's basically doing the same thing was, that she did to the Sasha Lane character where she's creating a memory of something to then entice mm -hmm. him to... I don't, I don't, can't even remember what he's supposed to tell her or what she needs from him. I thought she just needed that. She, she needs his iPad. Right. But just, but is, but does she just not know where it is? Like what's the, I, I don't know what it, right. what it is that she needs from him. Is that going to bother you? That you just spent an hour. No. Basically well, me, doing a fake dream sequence. Yeah. Go ahead. Before I answer that, let me say this did, I did feel emotionally connected to this episode regardless because it reminded me very keenly of the last time I was in New York and didn't charge my phone for an entire day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like looking for a place to plug in briefly. Like you end up at, at a bar and you're like, can I just plug this in over there behind yeah. the, the bottles of pop-off I'm vodka? sure bartenders like, are so glad that that's back. <laughs> they love, they always loved that. But to, to your point, I think being a comic book veteran, what a badge of honor that sounds yeah. like I'm, it is, but 
you have to move past that because no story you're reading matters emotionally in the larger contextual game, right? It matters just in the moment where you're reading it, where an element of a character is unlocked and there's the beautiful harmony between big, crazy written ideas and beautiful artwork. It's all going to be undone. Mm -hmm. It's fragile. And I think the best comic book writing embraces that and runs towards it. So whether this was a dream sequence now or later, like as long as the MCU is a, is a successful project, there will there will probably be other Loki variants. And when Tom right. Hiddleston gets tired of doing it, someone else will play the part as a variant who will now be the one we care about. See, right? I so, actually, I hope not. Because, I mean, I'm sure Loki has like a lot of, of, of like wins above, above replacement, you know, value to the universe. But like, to me, it's like the reason to do this show is to just yes. let him cook. Like, it's not, I need Loki to be gallivanting across timelines yeah. and like screwing things up and, and playing tricks on folks. Like it's like Tom Hiddleston is incredibly charming, clear out and let him work. I, 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 I couldn't agree more, which is why I, it's like not no Spider-Man. Trouble. It's like I, Spider-Man, they're going to have to keep casting right. Spider-Man. You know what I mean? But like that Loki, I'm just like, yeah, you know, like that you can bear that one with Tom Hiddleston. I think you are right about that. And I think that as more characters are added, it'll be interesting to see where they really strike casting gold because mm -hmm. and seeing those characters rise. And it is definitely driven by the movies and TV shows. You know, if you go, it's, they finally got it, their acts together. If you, if anyone listening who has stepped into a comic book store in the last year would agree with me, like, I think it took them years to figure out how to do this. But if you walked into a comic book store earlier in the year, there would be, there were perfectly positioned Scarlet Witch and Vision trade paperbacks, you know, right at the correct moment. And then suddenly Falcon or Winter Soldier, like they have their, they have solo series. They know what's, again, go just they know what's right. going on. They, yeah. they didn't used to have that kind of integration and and now they do. And so I think that, you know, if Sylvie turns out to be the supervillain, the Enchantress, I would not be surprised if she's playing an important role in Jason Aaron's Thor run that's happening right now or whatever. Uh -huh. But all that said, I like TV episodes like this. I like episodes where people talk. I think that, the, the, you know, I think the characters were well played and talked well. And I just think that overall, I'm just impressed by the construction of the series because this fit here. This didn't feel like a mandate, you know, where Marvel wanted this. So they wanted to introduce Lamentis or they wanted to whatever. It was like the, the show is built as a series of conversations, basically, you right. know, and, and two episodes were loki and and mobius and now it's loki and sylvie and i like talky shows and sure. i like that they found a fun framework and i let me say to set the conversation i way prefer the talky shows to the to the like fight sequences and and, and loki and, and that, just in general i'm just like i don't need to have 10 minutes of fighting it's it's I, fine i i don't either but i have to say I, it's funny you mentioned that i generally kind of tune out during mm -hmm. fight sequences and anything but i think that 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 Marvel method that we've heard about where they're like, come in to do what you do best and, you know, we'll storyboard the other stuff for you. I'm not saying that's what happened here, but I know that sure. they offer those services to directors and, and people who haven't done this sort of work. I thought the fight scenes, I mean, they're hard to stage. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not knocking like the skill that goes into them no, as I, much I, as like, no, nothing ever happens with those. Like they're no, very I thought they were well integrated. Yeah, right. In this in this particular episode of TV, last thing we should mention just about this episode before we move on to Top Chef was that it was written by um, Bisha Ali. She was credited with the script, and just worth noting her first appearance off screen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because she is the head writer and I guess de facto showrunner of Ms. Marvel, which has been filming cool. for these last few months, which is a big project coming up later in the year. Should we? We should also mention that that Loki is revealed to be, I believe, gender fluid and bisexual. 
Yes, yes. Well, confirmed to be. Confirmed. As a big, big fan, big fan energy on that one. And also, I think has been borne out in the comic books in recent years. I would love to comment on this, but I cannot think of a, of a more profound statement than what Van and uh, Charles did on Midnight Boys, where they discussed whether or not they would want to sleep with their with their identical other or their, their like their, wow. their soul partner. <laughs> like if they met themselves, would they sleep with right. themselves? You should just listen to midnight boys. I don't think yeah, I, got I can do better. I got nothing. <gasps> okay. So top chef, top chef, the semifinal, or at least the semi, I would like to, um, seed my time to someone else here, but not okay. you, not you. No. I would like to seed my time to a man we mostly know from ESPN, First Take, and his name is Stephen A. Chef. You ready? Wow. Andy Greenwald. What we saw last night on Tap Chef Portland was a disgrace! <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Is the show called Chef Andy Greenwald? Are we calling it just Chef? Is it just who wants to cook? Or is it called Top Chef? Is it a competition anymore? Wow. So you feel like they made it to the that's the my that's the edge I, and they I, blinked. I needed to have a little bit of a of a of a remove like by doing some character work there because I think I'm like 65 to 75% agree with the take I just said. So it's like okay. there's a part of me that thinks it's beautiful what happened last night on Top Chef. So in case Anybody just listens to these recaps without actually watching the show. It was the semifinal between Gabe, Dawn, and Shoda. They did a quick fire where they went clam digging with Brooke. Seemed really fun. Shoda cut his hand while making a, a what was it, like a, a soup? What did, what did Shoda make? A dashi? He's the only one who didn't make a soup. No, he made like like clam three ways. Like oh, that's right. They were sake stewed and also there was a fried element. And then Gabe and Dawn made some soups and everybody seemed to have a hard time getting their induction burner working in a <laughs> rainstorm. Uh, but you know, everybody goes on to the, the final elimination challenge or the elimination challenge. It's the semifinal to see who goes to the final. It is a Dungeness crab forward Mm -hmm. challenge where they go off and they, they catch their own crabs. They come back and they're supposed to cook crabs with two different preparations, a cold and a hot. And it looks like everybody makes some dynamite food. No doubt about it. And I thought that it was like the perfect distillation of where each one of those chefs are and who they are. Like, Shoda made like a purely creative, inventive, technically miraculous bite of food with the the daikon, I thought. It looked like mm-hmm. at least. Dawn had just so much heart and soul poured into her uh, crab boil. Mm-hmm. Gabe doing the stuff with tortillas and like trying to do different like flourishes and elevations of, of core Mexican preparations. And then we get to the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's like a there's several things that are being debated by up to twelve different chefs. Yeah, uh, in the judges' table, not the judges' table, but the eating table. And then they go to a final judges' table. They award Shota wins the elimination challenge, mm-hmm. and then they just say, "We've decided nobody is going home." Yeah, congratulations! You're all going to the finale. Yep. I take it you're a fan of this decision. I hear your frustrations. My frustration is just that this is the second time this has happened this season in some ways. In in a way. 
the Byron, the, the Byron yeah. gauntlet of the tofu tournament and then four last chance kitchen cooks. And interestingly enough, the people who he was cooking against in last chance kitchen were like, we are making it our mission so that he does not come back because it's easier to beat four other people than five other people. Yeah. So I was very surprised. Not that they're like, I expect Shota to be magnanimous and he obviously loves these people that he's cooking with. I was surprised to see Shota be like, so now I have to beat two people in the finale. Well, you mean that he wasn't expressing more. Yeah, that there was not like a kind of like, huh. So I won this, but I actually didn't get any kind of like advantage for winning it or there's no benefit to winning it. Yeah, I think I think that's the strongest argument against this by far. Um, And I'd be curious how the edit was handled because Shota is not I mean, as we saw with his attempts, good, good natured attempts to block Gabe from ever winning a quickfire. And good and Shota wanted by didn't want no, no part of Byron coming back. Right. Shota can is competitive and he sometimes will do the thing where you say what you really feel and then shrug it off with a good natured laugh. So it's very possible that he expressed some of that and maybe we'll see some of it and it was edited out or we'll see it next week. I think one of the counters to your well-made point is that both (laughs) of these things have happened before. Stephen A's well-made point. Right. Uh, I I would not go toe-to-toe with Stephen A. Stephen A. Chef? (laughs) On any any topic. What about, who who does, like Sterling Sharpen Your Knives? Is that going to work? Yes. I can can do better. Max Um, Thomas Keller? Oh, oh, I like that one. That's a little, took me a second. You understand what I'm doing right now is trying to skip bay leaf. <laughs> like I, I, I can't. This is all off the dome, guys. This is harder than it looks. Um, these things, these things have both happened before. The last chance kitchen gauntlet, which I was very frustrated by as well, happened last year in the All Star season. Kevin was able to win and got back into the competition. The we can't decide, you guys are all champions, we're going to have a three-person finale, has happened before. I did not have a moment to research which seasons that happened in, but, but you, I, it has happened like to I the degree rem- where... I think I remember it too. I'm just, I yes. think even two weeks ago, I suggested that we were headed there, that, that, that there was going to be a week where no one was going to go home, um, partly because of the, the good vibes and the sort of equal... Na- it, it, Shoda is clearly separated himself, but Gabe and Don are certainly able to cook at his level and mm-hmm. felt very, very equal in terms of their what happened last night. So these things have happened before. I also can definitely empathize with the judges, which is I want to see all three of these chefs cook the meal of their lives without restrictions. There is nothing to me that suggests that they shouldn't have that opportunity. I know the game is the game, but the game is also mutable and changes week to week and season to season. I also think that the decision may have something to do with the fact that this penultimate challenge was too hard. I think it may have just been too hard. But that was and never I mentioned. Know, no, but I, well, we certainly heard from the chefs themselves being like, cooking 13 plates of food, no, 26 plates of food, two courses, while also cleaning and processing these impossible crabs is, you know, it's just not really precedented. And we saw the effects on like Shota never gets rattled by time or anything. Right. And, and he, he was supposed to do sushi one, two ways and just did it one. Right. He, he exactly. And which by the way, never over promise and under deliver. Like I know. you just never tell the menu person what you should just say sushi and then be like, great sushi. Right. Um, but then, you know, Dawn had an error as well, which she just bewilderingly owned up to. I, that was kind of interesting. She didn't need to do that. Um, 
it, she was she's just almost radically honest when they were like, was this mess intentional? She should have been like, yes. Right. Richard, like Richard Blaze would have been like, yes. And also the sauce is so pure, you don't need anything to dunk into it. Right. You, you don't need I mean? a starch. Right. I, I loved on as a person for being so honest and like using that as an opportunity to get feedback and be honest and talk about it. Cause I think she's going to emerge more successful I and mean, she's already a success, but an even greater chef in person. But, and then Gabe also, you know, like melted a kitchen towel into a tortilla. <laughs> I, it's an interesting balance. I mean, they respect these chefs a lot and obviously they want the competition to get harder and harder, but the cheese challenge and the, and this one felt technically more demanding. And listen, people who have watched, seasons or done a whole deep dive or rewatch more recently than I have can probably correct me if I'm wrong here, but they felt just really hard at a time in a technical way, like just processing crabs, you know what I mean? Like making right. two dishes and defeating these two people is hard enough, but doing that kind of kitchen grunt work felt really challenging. So I felt like in some ways, though they didn't say it, it was a make good because they all kind of messed up to a degree. Um, I could see that. The other thing is, one of the successes of Top Chef has been its ability to consistently communicate to us things that are impossible for us to truly understand I, or reason with. You I know, like this tastes better than that. This I is completely harder agree than with that. you. And I do think that right now, and, while I am enjoying the cast of, th of thousands that they have mm -hmm. eating and judging and talking about this stuff, there was like a real, like, you guys are shattering the glass right now moment when there is this debate about a sunchoke in Gabe's dish. The, the prominence of a roasted sunchoke And whether flavor. or not the sunchoke overshadowed the crab. I Have you ever seen Brooke that upset? No, but like, here's the issue is I can't, I don't know. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm not eating that sunchoke. I'm not eating that crab. It's one thing if there's three fishermen from the crab boat and a person who, who is the pres preserver of all crab recipes in the Pacific Northwest and somebody from the James Beard Foundation and they're all like, well, this is just dynamite food. And then Padma, Gail, Tom, and if they have a guest judge or whoever are like, didn't like this, love this, didn't like this, love this. When you've got 12, 15 world famous chefs having literal like the sunchoke or not to sunchoke debates, mm -hmm. I have no idea. And it actually winds up unwinding the kind of, not faith that you have in the sort of process, but I, it's not that I need Pat McGill and Tom to judge every dish, but I do think that they should be the voices that we're hearing. Because otherwise, I, mm -hmm. you start to get into, well, fuck it. I, I, like, if, if, if all of Top Chef has told me that plating is important, but then Don dumps a bunch of stew, basically, in a plate and, and throws it on the table... And they're all like, this is fucking amazing. And one and a couple of people are like, this looks like she poured it in with a fire hose. What's I, which I one's right? I, Top Chef, though, is a living, breathing thing. And actually, it is an 18 season march from an objective standard in the kitchen to a subjective standard, which is where we are headed, you know, where we've headed culturally, societally. I mean, it's a much deeper issue as well. I think that Top Chef has managed that march beautifully and in ways that are like deeply moving and deeply inspiring. Um, but it is, uh, it, it's not without its bumps along the road. And so if you consider it, there's two things to consider. One, Shoda's triumphs this season are really incredible because he is, as he keeps saying, as he's becoming more comfortable saying and expressing, cooking purely Japanese food at this point, you know, a stewed daikon radish, 
it doesn't get more purely Japanese than that. And it's beautiful and transcendent. And he's competing only against himself at this point because he's not using oils. He's not using butter. You know, yeah. he's not using anything that Top Chef winners would have used. So that's in and of itself is noteworthy and amazing. One step further, though, Gabe's errors, such as they were, were technical. Mm-hmm. You know, he um, served a hot dish instead that, of a cold dish. Right. Previous seasons of Top Chef, I feel like that's... That's a Brian Voltaggio, you are going home. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Then he missed one of the most important elements on one of the plates. That, that again, I, as we talked about before. I personally bet that that crab tortilla would taste good even if it had some melted linen in there. I, I, would, I would have, have been, been fine like, with it. Mine has notes of linen, like fresh you know laundry. What, <laughs> do you know what tastes better than Sunchoke's? <laughs> melted kitchen towel in crab fat. Um, Dawn, on the other hand, though, is... <laughs> it, she's confounding and beguiling and inspiring in equal measure, right? Because... What she served them as the crab boil, her first, I loved what they said about her first dish, that it, what Tom one. said, that it's a branding, she made a massive branding error. Yeah. If she just said this was like essentially like a vegan chowder, she, she would make money off of it. Instead, yeah. she's like, it's a cashew soup with this on the side and with extra frizzy bits. It's like, oh, that, that, that kind of thing. When Tom jumps in and says that from like the God level chef of like how we're going to succeed in this industry that we're going right. to rebuild together, it's right. fascinating. But her second dish, this crab boil, is 10 seasons ago. You're not making that in the semifinals. Mm-hmm. You're not certainly not advancing with it. But I loved what Gail said. They all fell silent. And then they were having fun and wiping each other's faces and ruining their wardrobe. Yes. You know? And that Which is, is that You're powerful. absolutely right. It's, the, it's totally the transformation that not only Top Chef has had, but the difference between like we're going out to dinner 10 years ago or 15 years ago or whatever it is to now is the transformation you're talking about. It's white tablecloth and everybody is like, the chef will now dominate you with his vision of the nine course, whatever, versus like, hey, you know what everybody loves to do is sit around a table and share food and share an experience together. And laugh. So like, roll your, roll your fucking sleeves up and put a bib on, you know? And that's what Alice Waters said. The best, the, yeah. whenever she, James Beard was really into something, he would tuck a napkin into his... And- Collar. And this is how smart the show is on numerous levels, right? Like the James Beard Awards are given and they're, you know, and talked about on the show, but they had become, and they were, you know, they took a year off because they'd become riven with the same kind of elitist, patriarchal, classist, you know, uh, structures that have ruined much of America, let alone the dining scene. Right. And James Beard, as his biographer said recently, would have hated that because he had many problems and faults, but he did believe what Tom said in this democratization of food and food cultures. And so Dawn championed that. And so for me, allowing them both to move on, not only is going to make a really fascinating and, and, and I think just beautiful final for what has been an incredibly, incredibly successful season of TV. And we'll talk more about it next week when we get there. But I don't, I think it was fair for this moment, this inflection moment, really, for what the show is and what mm-hmm. it's going to be. And to let these three completely distinct chefs with distinct foodways and cultural backgrounds and stories um, keep cooking for this family, familial group, as you said, of people that we also know and love. I don't know. I mean, we, we'll talk more about it next week. Hopefully, we could have some special guests on when we when the season is over. But I I keep using this word and I never thought I would use it about Top Chef, but maybe I wouldn't have used it about food in general 15 years ago. But like Nina Compton and Kwame, like being the judges for this, for the diverse chef testants that are there and the celebration that it is engendering, you know, is 
not like anything else I've seen on TV in a while. And it's really, it's really uplifting and pure in a way that I needed. And I think hopefully viewers have responded to as well. I just want is we can keep doing this where it's just like, you know what, this has really been a hard season and this has been, everybody's working as, as hard as they can and this is such a sacrifice and I agree with all of it and it is really heartwarming. It better end with Tom being like, finish him. <laughs> like Mortal Kombat <laughs> style. <laughs> That's Don's final test. It's like, <laughs> just fucking sub-zeroing somebody. Well, just all the skills she learned cracking those giant gooey duck clams right yeah yeah. like i just hope he doesn't deliver it in a soggy fedora you know what i mean like i just i want i want him to be just a little bit more tuned up okay so uh we'll be back monday yes you'll be joining me on monday well who knows you know i love podcasting with you my brother no we'll be back on monday we'll we'll kick it and then on uh thursday night friday morning we'll have top chef the finale and uh loki season episode four all right thanks for listening guys have a great weekend for Hanson's.